This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Artbase. Did you know that Artbase is the best love software in the art world? Artbase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art and your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports, even use it on your iPad or iPhone at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy Artbase clients all over the world. Artbase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Sarah Rafino, Senior Editor at Art and Auction Magazine. There's a new article out in their September issue on the 25 most collectible artists, specifically focusing on conceptual art, and Sarah's here to talk to us about it. Sarah, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. For our listeners who have heard the term but don't really understand it, how do you define or explain conceptual art? For people who are familiar with conceptual art but don't entirely understand what the term means, um, I think that the sort of easiest way to give a brief uh, description of it is to say that it started with Marcel Duchamp, who in 1913 submitted a urinal to the salon um, that he signed Armut, and the urinal was rejected. And that was okay, um, because what Marcel Duchamp wanted to do was um, to bring art away from the retinal and to the mind. Um, He was interested in art that made people think, um, that wasn't just about looking. And um, that's sort of the brief history of it. And then the way that it has lived out throughout the past 100 years is... um, In the second half of the 20th century, um, there was both a a sort of specific school of conceptualism that emerged in urban centers in Europe and the United States. Um, And those are artists like Kossuth and Baldessari and Lawrence Wiener and Marcel Brotars, um, who people are more familiar with. Um, And then at the same time, there was a much wider integration of conceptualism into art practices throughout the world. So while we might immediately think that it is a specific school, it also is a much more um, sort of global uh, phenomenon. And why do you think conceptual art is difficult for collectors to collect and embrace compared to other artistic movements? I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, I think the the biggest challenge to collecting conceptual art, and and there are many, which I will get into, but the biggest one is that it really takes a a longer period of time to understand. Um, If you walk into a gallery and, and the work is conceptual and you don't have a context for it, the chances of someone understanding it and connecting with it and engaging with it are, it's much less likely. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The The second thing is that there are not many galleries who have both the resources and the interest in investing in conceptual art. And that's because the art is not necessarily very sellable. It's not necessarily paintings. It's not sculpture. It can really be any medium. It can be performance. It can be photography. It can be male art. It can be art that is, um, I mean, people really were challenging the systems of exhibiting and selling and buying and collecting art. Um, So in some senses, it was art that was not meant to be a part of the market establishment. Um, And that's not across the board, but that is the case for 
several of the artists who are on our most collectible list. Uh, one example is Hans Hacke. Um, he was a German artist who insists that anybody who's interested in collecting his work has to sign a contract um, that governs how the work is exhibited, it governs how the work um, is photographed, and it reserves a royalty for him anytime the work is resold. Um, this has made it difficult, at, at least, for uh, collectors to purchase his work. Um, but on the other hand, people who are willing and engaged and want to have um, perhaps a more involved conversation with artists um, can really have that experience with conceptual art because it's it's work that um, you really can return to again and again and, and learn and um, I mean it challenges and, and that's I think the, the interest in it um, and with that people who collect it aren't doing it as an investment so it doesn't often come to the secondary market um, the people who have been committed to collecting con conceptual art have built their collections over a very long period of time, and it's art that has tended to stay in their collections, um, or it's gone to institutions and museums. Um, so individuals have not um, had as many opportunities, I guess, in a way as well. And so the article in the September issue of Art and Auction features a list of the 25 most collectible artists, as you said. Who are a few of the most well-known artists on your list? And if you could just tell us a little bit about them briefly and the extent to which they are collected. Sure. Um, so the first artist who comes to mind when you ask that question is Joseph Boyce. Um, he was a hugely influential artist to many, many artists. Um, he comes up again and again throughout the list as somebody that other people were looking to as they were learning, as they were developing their practice. Um, and his work ranges from multiples, prints, works on paper, to very large-scale installations. Um, and his work, again, tends to be in institutions and museums rather than in private collections. But because he made multiples and because there were also works on paper, um, the, the, the prices can be really, really affordable, um, especially considering how important he was. Um, another artist who comes to mind is Lee Lozano. And Lee Lozano is a really interesting case um, of an artist who was essentially, she was a part of the art world. She was showing as a painter and she um, decided she wanted to remove herself from the art world. And the way she did this was through performance. Um, she did performances that involved not going to art world events. She did performances that involved not speaking to women. And these performances became her life. Um, she was one of the first artists to practice a sort of um, art as life practice. Um, and she eventually moved to Texas and she died and she was buried in an unmarked grave. And um, in the early 2000s, the curator Bob Nikas and Alana Heiss curated a show of her work at MoMA PS1 and then her work, her estate was picked up by Hauser & Wirth, um, which has since built an incredible market for her work. Um, there isn't necessarily a ton available. A lot of their shows include works that are um, that are in private collections and are not changing hands. Um, and, they, and then there are works that are available as well, which um, are over a million dollars. And who are a few lesser-known artists on your list who you think have the potential to become more collectible in the future? Right. So this is, 
I think a lot of the artists on the list, um, when you think about their historical, critical um, contributions and, and what they were doing and, and how the ways in which it has changed the way we engage with art, I think many of the artists on the list are uh, lesser known um, Two of those examples that come to mind immediately are Paolo Bruschi and Robert Fayou. Um, Paolo Bruschi was a, is a Brazilian artist. He's still alive. He lives in the northeast of Brazil in a city called Recife, and um, he was a part of Fluxus. He came to New York in the early 80s on a Guggenheim, and um, he stayed in pretty much out of the art world, um, but he did maintain relationships through mailing his work to institutions. He had a local priest in his Cife who would come visit him in his studio and buy his work. But other than that, he didn't engage in the art world um, really until he um, started working with uh, Galleria Nara Rossler in, I think, 2009. Um, and since then, he has had a solo show at the Bronx Museum, and he is gaining in international recognition, but um, I think in terms of what he did for art in Brazil um, and on an international scale, he's really pretty under-recognized. Um, the other artist that I was thinking of is Robert Fayou, who was French. Um, he is represented by Peter Freeman, Richard Saltoun, um, and he was a poet, and similar to Marcel Brotars, who is another artist, uh, not on our list, but an incredible, incredible artist who is, in my opinion, very undervalued. Um, so you was a poet, and at some point in his life, he realized that he also needed to make a living and couldn't do it through poetry, and he started making work. Um, and he is pretty widely known to my understanding, throughout Europe, but much less so in the United States. Um, he did have a solo booth at Freeze this past year in New York, which I think brought a lot of exposure. People were really talking about it. It was a great booth. Um, and I think that he's somebody we're going to be hearing more about as well. And I know at the top you said you mentioned that conceptual art is more often uh, will more often be collected by museums and institutions rather than uh, being sold to collectors through galleries. But I'm curious, looking at three different uh, concepts, auction, gallery, and museum shows, would you say conceptual art is being embraced by each of these uh, over the past few years more or less or about the same uh, than it has? So are there any trends in terms of conceptual art at, in each of these phases of the art world? There are, and I will get into that. But I guess I just want to... Um, offer a little caveat to what I said earlier, which is that I think the museums and institutions have historically had the, um, have historically been more engaged with collecting of conceptual art, but, um, and, and this is why we did this piece, but there is really an opportunity for individuals to also collect this art because um, there's a lot of photography involved, there's a lot of assemblage involved, there's, um, there's works that are really, really affordable. Um, and and that, to me, you know, researching this was just fascinating. Like, why aren't people more interested in this? Because eventually we are looking for that engagement, that connection. I think that's why people want to live with art, and I think conceptual art can do that. Um, and in terms of the trends, um, I think the Christie's Bound to, Bound to Fail sale is a pretty interesting indicator that there is a rising interest um, they explicitly were looking at works that challenge ideas of commercial success, and they did phenomenally well. They had 
um, their sell-through rates by value and by lot were just under 100%. They exceeded their estimates. Um, and I, I, my, my suspicion is that we're going to see more of this art because history is proving its value. And if that's what people are looking for, they're going to find it in conceptual art. Who holds the auction record for the most expensive conceptual art sold? That is a difficult question, and it brings up some other factors that I didn't really get into, um, that we didn't get into in the piece, but, um, I mean, Coons and Hearst um, are, are two artists who very easily can fall under the conceptual art uh, idea, you know, genre. Um, so there are some conceptual artists who do incredibly, incredibly well in the market and do incredibly well in the secondary market. Um, that I think is a different school of artists than 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 our most collectible list uh, presents, because um, we're looking at really the artists who have had the uh, the critical and institutional recognition, but who haven't fully met their potential within the secondary market. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with us about your upcoming article, The 25 Most Collectible Artists, specifically Conceptual Artists, which will be available in the September issue of Art and Auction. For our listeners who want to check out the article, how can they go about reading it? The article is in our print edition of Art and Auction, and it will also be available online at blueinartinfo.com. Perfect. Thanks again, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to ArtBase for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Did you know that ArtBase is the best love software in the art world? That's because ArtBase offers products that do everything you need to run your art business. Track your art in your contacts and cross-reference them. Make invoices, generate consignments, run all kinds of reports. Even use it on your iPhone or iPad at art fairs or while you're away. Take it from the thousands of happy ArtBase clients all over the world. ArtBase is the right software for your art business. Visit ArtBase.com to find out more.